Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and then Acts 17. So let me read for us. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Moving to Acts 17. Beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. One of our core values as a church is to join God in his mission. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Leslie Newbegin was a British theologian and missionary who spent 40 years as a missionary in India. From the late 1930s to the late 1970s, Newbegin lived in India, and in the late 70s, he returned to his home country of uh, Britain. 
And when he got back to Britain, he noticed something that struck him. And what he noticed was that the cultural consensus that in many ways had included the church as a pillar of uh, culture and society in the United Kingdom had largely, in his time away from the UK, collapsed. Newbegin realized that the people he had been ministering the gospel to in a non-quote Christianized part of the world, India, uh, were not that different any longer from the people of the West, from a world that had once been Christianized. And so Newbegin spent the remaining years of his life arguing through writing and through speaking that a new missionary encounter with the Western world was needed. What Newbegin knew was that in non-Western churches, there was no such thing as a church that had as a part of its ministry a missions department or a missions ministry. Rather, in places like India, Christians were always in mission in every aspect of their public and private lives together. And when Newbegin got back to Britain in the late 1970s, he realized that this is what the church must again adjust to in the Western world. And here's what I want you to hear this morning, friends. The United States is today where the UK was in the late 1970s when Newbegin returns. What we are encountering today in our culture is a rapid degeneration of, quote, Christian values. The Western world is fast becoming a post-Christian society. Uh, It's fast becoming a, a mission field. And here's something that you must hear. Most churches are adjusting very little of what they're doing in response to this. I think we should listen to Newbegin's story and hear the truth that Western churches should begin putting the same thought and effort into reaching the non-Christian culture as churches in places like India and China and the rest of the world do. We are rapidly moving into a post-Christian culture. You might just intuit that just by living in the world, but COVID has accelerated that process. COVID has accelerated that process. I think we can safely say that now, two plus or almost two years into COVID. Ernest Hemingway, when once asked how he went bankrupt, said, gradually and then suddenly. Gradually and then suddenly. That's how you go bankrupt, apparently. And that's, in many ways, what it seems like has happened in our world. Our world has become secularized and post-Christian gradually and then suddenly. There are studies now that are showing that almost a third of members of evangelical churches in the United States have really evaporated since COVID began. They've disappeared. People have just drifted away. And and we've seen that here as well. No church is immune to that. I also think it's important for us to understand that there's not going to be a going back to normal. 2019 is in the past. This is the new normal in many ways. Before COVID hit, our culture was already experiencing significant shifts. The gap between the rich and the poor was increasing. That has been accelerated in COVID. I read an article this week from the Wall Street Journal that talked about the economic recovery uh, being a K-shaped recovery. What that means is if you imagine a K in your mind, there's one part of the letter that slants upward. That's 
the more upwardly mobile and wealthy part of America has recovered well, frankly, from COVID, whereas those who were already struggling have been decimated financially for probably multiple generations, and that would be the second half of the letter K. The economic gap has been widened by COVID. The political left and the political right have become more extreme as a result of COVID. The polarization of our political landscape is massive. As we remember from 2020, racial justice, racial injustice, and and tensions are on the front pages of web media and newspapers. For those of you that still read those old things called newspapers, I'm sure they're on the front page, although I haven't looked at a newspaper in a while. The pandemic has sped up all of these trends, and we're unlikely to return to the way things were. So how is the church going to respond? How is the church going to respond in such times? It may sound dour what I've said thus far, but I actually believe this is an opportunity and a season for hope for us. I've been thinking and reflecting on these things for a while, and especially in the last week, and I believe this is a moment for us to clarify, again, our mission together. Our church needs to move into the future together, being crystal clear on the nature of our mission. And here's a massive part of that for us at Christ Church. Every single one of you, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, is a missionary. Missionaries are not the people that you give a little bit of money to who are over there that you receive a newsletter from a couple of times a year. Missionaries are any who name the name of Jesus and are followers of the way of Jesus in our post-Christian world. That's true of you individually, and it's true of us collectively. Christ Church is not a place people go to. Christ Church is not a place people go to. No church is a place, a building people go to. The church is a people who go. Harvey Kahn, one of my theological mentors, put it like this. The church is the only organization on earth that exists for the sake of its non-members. Leslie Newbegin puts it this way. The church is nothing other than the movement launched into the public life of the world by its sovereign Lord to continue that which he came to do until it is finished in his return to glory. I'd like us to take a moment this morning and reimagine and recommit to the mission of the church if we're going to be effective for the Lord in the coming year, years, and decades. One of our core values, we have seven of them. You should be able to ask one of our elders, and I bet they can tell you all seven off the top of their heads. Right, guys? Seven core values, one of which is missional living. We exist to join God in his mission. And God's mission is to redeem and renew this fallen, broken world through Jesus Christ. God is doing this by ushering in his kingdom. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. He's doing this by his grace through his people, through us. So what does it look like for us in a decaying culture to join God in his mission? How is this value to be incubated in our lives together? How can we prioritize it this year? There's no better template for our own missionary endeavor than Paul's life. And so I want to just take a couple of minutes And I want to look with you at three impulses of the missional church. Three impulses of the missional church. Impulses that I want to be manifest in our own church in the coming year. And so we'll look at these two passages. The first two points are from Acts 17. The third one is from Acts 2. The first impulse of a missional church is that a missional church preaches the gospel. 
A missional church preaches the gospel. If, if you'll look at that story in Acts 17, great story. The Apostle Paul is in the city of Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him so he can continue his third missionary journey. Athens, as you might imagine, is the most secular of all secular cities in the ancient world. And while Paul's waiting here for his friends to rendezvous with him, he wastes no time. Luke tells us in verse 18 that he was preaching, Paul was, Jesus and the resurrection. And we read, Paul receives a hearing. He's invited to speak to the Greek philosophers at this place called Mars Hill, where the Areopagus still stands today. And so he preaches this very interesting sermon to them. I wish we had more time to discuss how it's different from when he talks to Jews. There's a lot of good stuff there. Maybe we'll come back to it someday. But the main thing I want you to see is what Paul says in verse 31. It's the peak of his message. Look at what he says. God, he says, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to everyone by raising that man, Jesus, from the dead. Here's what I want you to hear. The core, the heartbeat of Paul's message is the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The news about what had happened to Jesus. When we use the word gospel, that's what we mean. The gospel is the good news about what's happened to Jesus. It's the message of Jesus dying on a cross to atone for human rebellion against God, its maker, and, and to suffer for our evil. It's news about what happened to Jesus after he died. He was buried and dead for three days. And then miraculously, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he came back to life again. His resurrection ensures that God accepts Jesus' death as payment for human sin. It ensures that all the world will one day be made new as Jesus has already been made new. This is the central beating heart of the Christian faith. And what I want you to see is that is what Paul focuses on in his own missionary ministry. And therefore, a missional church, a church that is seeking to reach a post-Christian culture, follows the witness of the scripture and the example of Paul and all the apostles by focusing its message on the news about Jesus, on the gospel. Missional churches teach and preach and speak about and live out the news of Jesus' death and resurrection and the call to faith and repentance in response to that news. A church can do all the other things that you might read about missional churches doing that I'm about to talk about here in a moment. But if they don't do this, everything else is irrelevant. If they don't do this, they're not following God in his mission. And so here at our church, entering into our ninth year together. 2022, we want to, to continue to have a laser beam focus on the message of the gospel taking center stage in our life as a church. And everything we do supporting, buttressing that message. I want you to be excited. I want us to have the joy that explodes into our hearts when we hear the message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit awakens us to the love of God the Father in Christ for failures and frauds like me. 
I want our church to explode with joy at that message and to think, I can't believe that that's true. Remember, uh, remember The Force Awakens. It's, a, it's, I think, number seven if you go Star Wars chronologically, right? It's the first of the most recent trilogy. And uh, there's a, a scene in that film that I loved. It's, it's when uh, Ray and Finn, the two young heroes of the story, are first encountering Han Solo and Chewbacca. And, and they live in an age past Luke Skywalker and all that stuff. And, and that's become the stuff of legend, right? The stuff of myth. It's in the distant past, and no one really thinks it's true. And when they first encounter Han Solo, they, they discover that Han was a part of those adventures. And, and Finn, specifically, approaches him with a bit of skepticism. He thinks, I can't believe these stories about the Force and, and the Jedi are real. And, and my favorite scene is when Han Solo, you know, the doubter of doubters in the Star Wars epic, looks at him and he says, it's true. All of it. It's all true. And, and on his face is a smile that only Harrison Ford probably can, can conjure up. And, and it just sort of strikes everyone in the room that these stories actually are true. That's how I want us to respond to the good news of the gospel. Because our mission in life and our mission as a church flows out of our joyful amazement that the gospel is true. A dead man came back to life and is still alive. It's well attested. It was witnessed by hundreds. And he promises that as Lord of the world, he will make us alive together with him. He will end all pain and evil. He will take away the guilt that we know we all have. He'll give us a true family, a perfect, all-powerful, loving father, a, a reason for hope. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes when he returns, and we'll live forever in a perfect new world with him. It's all true. That should cause joy to explode. Do, do you know and experience the joy the gospel brings? Have you tasted the truth of life with Jesus Christ? Are you rejoicing in the forgiveness and the grace and the love of God our Father? Are you, are you walking in the Spirit, experiencing His love and His presence? Friends, listen, that is the power of our mission, not our grit, but God's grace. And as people are transformed by grace, we see the gospel go forth. The first impulse of the missional church is that it preaches the gospel. That's our laser beam focus. Given that a missional church preaches the gospel, the question then becomes uh, really a question of implications. If a missional church is effectively communicating the news about Jesus, what should we expect? That's what these next two points are about. So secondly, look with me and see that a missional church, this is the second impulse, a missional church confronts cultural idols. A missional church confronts cultural idols. Back in Acts 17, look at what Paul does. He's walking around in this city sort of as a tourist, waiting for Silas and Timothy to show up. And, and Luke must have been with him or had received this message from Paul because Luke tells us what Paul thought. He said his spirit was provoked within him, verse 16, as he saw that the city was full of idols. He's provoked. That word means he was angered about the massive amount of false worship, idolatry, that he saw as he walked through the city. And here's what I want you to catch. 
Paul can't help but address, but confront the false worship going on around him. The risen Jesus propels Paul into that sort of loving confrontation through his preaching and evangelistic ministry. Notice, Paul doesn't just get angry and say, these Athenians, golly, and then hunker down in his hotel room until Silas and Timothy arrive. No, his provocation leads him into engagement. Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day. He's with the religious and he's with the irreligious. Paul uses his provocation as an engine to drive himself to cultural engagements into confronting the powers and principalities that dominate a culture. That's the work of the missional church. The missional church deconstructs the idolatries of the age. So the proclamation and the work of the gospel doesn't just have private implications. Friends, the proclamation and the work of the gospel doesn't just imply that your personal life has changed. It certainly does imply that, but it implies much more. It has public, societal, cultural implications and ramifications. Paul proves that here and in many other places. And so a missional church engaged in gospel ministry should be asking itself first, where are we as a people captive to the idolatries of our age. We may not set up wooden and stone statues and put them in a temple and worship them, but that doesn't mean that we don't have our own idols, our own things that we like to believe in and love more than the one true God. First, where do we? Where are we captive to idolatries? And then second, what are the idolatries of our age that we need to work to deconstruct and and combat? The early church gives us so many wonderful illustrations of this reality. And by early church, I don't mean like in the 1800s, right? I mean like the first three centuries after Jesus was raised from the dead. In um, Roman society, they saw as a pillar of their, of their life together, a pillar of their society was reverence for the gods. And so you would go into any Roman city, Rome and many others, and there's a temple there. And these people by that time likely didn't literally believe in Apollo or in Zeus or in whoever, but the pillars of society reverenced that aspect of their culture and saw it as foundational. And so when Christians started showing up in mass in early Rome, ironically, The Christians, of all people, were accused by the Romans of being atheists. Why were Christians accused of being atheists? Because they refused to take place in the idolatry, in the the idol worship of ancient Rome. And it was seen by the Romans as a societal threat. Polycarp was a bishop in modern-day Turkey in the early 2nd century. And when he was martyred, put to death for his faith, the crowds were shouting, away with the atheists. Away with the atheists. Only in a culture full of idols and only with a people of faith that were standing against those idols and worshiping the one true God alone could Christians be called atheists. There's been a tendency throughout church history to think that the church should retreat from culture rather than engage culture. 
There's all kinds of examples of that throughout history. I, I just am unconvinced that that stands up to the evidence that the New Testament offers. In some ways, it would be a lot easier for Christians just to disengage, uh, to write off the world as lost, and to build our own little culture within a culture. And we see that in, in many pockets of the evangelical world. But, but remember, Jesus Christ says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The gospel is the only power that's actually able to confront the idolatry of the age and replace it with the kingdom of God. And God in his sovereignty has chosen to use followers of Jesus Christ in that effort. So what are the idolatries of our age? What are the ideas and the values that our culture worships? that the church must be aware of, that the church must stand against, that the church must address in her own life and seek to replace with the gospel's power and with the gospel's life. I'm sure you could give me many. Let me just give you two examples of current cultural idolatries. The first, and perhaps the most prominent, is expressive, autonomous individualism. I would argue, actually, that this is the idol of our age. What does that mean? It's, it's the idea that we're all the arbiters of our own destiny and that our highest end, our highest good is our own personal, individual freedom and enhancement. And one of the great problems in our world is that this particular idol manifests on both the right and the left and the right sees it in the left and the left sees it in the right, but they don't ever see it in their own camp. I'm sure none of y'all are guilty of that at all. We're just talking about those people out there now, right? Nope. Uh, each side is blind to how it impacts their own worldview, but they're keen to point out how it impacts the worldview of the other side. That's such a huge problem. It's a huge problem in the church. Expressive individualism is obvious on the left. We have all kinds of movements saying that you can define who you are. You can even define your own biology based on what you believe about yourself. And the right is very good at pointing out the foibles of that. But it's also evident on the right. A concern for my individual rights only and not for the community. The point is both are manifestations of the idol of autonomous individualism. And both are called into the obedience of the gospel. The church must confront, first in our own walls and secondly in the culture, this idol. A second idol, affluence and comfort. This idol says you will be happy and you will be fulfilled if you have enough money, if you have enough comfort to do what you want and to live the life you wish. Remember what Jesus says about money? He talks about it a lot. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money, new possessions to buy, and looking with jealousy on those who have more than they do. Trusters of money feel that they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. Like all idols, this idol cannot in the end deliver on what it promises. The church confronts this idol and all idols by, by practicing 
radical generosity and sacrificial service in the name of the gospel. The point I want you to hear, friends, is that the gospel and our profession of it has public implications. It has implications for how we act and live in the world. It has implications for what we view the purpose of our own lives to be. And so, if as a people, we are simply saying, I believe the gospel, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, my sins have been forgiven, period, we've fallen short of what Jesus Christ calls his people to. He calls us to believe and love all those things, absolutely, but then to see the implications they have over all of life. That's the second impulse. A missional church confronts cultural Idols. So much more to say there. I'll stop now. Third impulse of a missional church is that a missional church practices communal evangelism. That Acts 2 passage is instructive here. A missional church in so many ways is, is to be a counterculture within its own community. And the community itself is an evangelistic tool. That's one of the beautiful things about that Acts 2 text, which is a text we love at this church. These verses describe the life of the early church as it gathered and and lived together. Luke tells us they loved one another. They were together with one another. They worshiped and they studied and they sang and they prayed. They were in one another's homes. They were in one another's lives. And as a result, verse 47, by the power of the spirit, they had favor with the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Here's the thing you should see. The practice of loving Christian community has a missional impact. That's so important. It's so crucial in our day. People have to see. People have to experience that Christianity really is real via relationships. People have to see that Christianity really makes a positive and powerful difference in the way people treat each other. Leslie Newbigin, who I talked about a moment ago, calls the church the hermeneutic of the gospel. The word hermeneutic is a technical term that refers to how one interprets the Bible. Uh, So Newbigin is saying that the best interpretation that non-believers have of Christianity is the community of faith. And so, a missional church is following God in his mission in the sense that those who are skeptical of Christianity, those who are self-professed not Christians, and those who just aren't sure, interact with our people and make friends with our people in our community and, and experience something different than what they've seen in other relationships. They experience something, frankly, that's attractive in the way we love one another. That they see that The things we read about here in Acts 2 still happen in churches today. They see that our friendships are not like other friendships. We give generously to each other without expecting something in return. We don't betray each other and gossip about each other. We don't fake it in front of each other, but but we live real life together. And, And when we fail one another, we ask for forgiveness and forgiveness is granted. Tim Keller on this point writes this, a a missional church knows how to welcome doubters and graciously include them as much as possible in community so they can see the gospel fleshed out in life and process the gospel message through numerous personal interactions. Let me, let me say this. Okay. Um, 
I want you to see how different that is from sort of the routine evangelistic presentation that you grew up with if you grew up in a church. And here's what I want you to more than anything understand. In a post-Christian society, that is what evangelism looks like. What I grew up with and what I know some of you grew up with growing up in a church in the 70s, 80s, 90s is that gospel information is presented to a stranger. That stranger is called to make a decision about Jesus. If he makes an affirmative decision, he or she is welcomed into the church. Then friendship is extended to the person. Then this convert is trained for service and ministry by makes, makes all these new Christian friends. That's not bad. It certainly isn't bad. It's a good thing. It just doesn't work very well. And it's not what you see in Acts 2. What we see here is a genuine friendship between a Christian and a non-Christian is built. That leads to the non-Christian seeing authentic faith and, and ministry lived openly and beginning to participate in it. And then the gospel is naturally presented to that person in both word and deed within the context of the relationship. And the non-Christian's conversion to Jesus typically is a process that comes through various many decisions. And, and it is a process in relationship with other Christians in the church. And then the church celebrates the conversion of their friends. But practically for us, this means that there's always going to be among us. And we're thankful for this. People that just aren't sure if they agree with what I'm saying. <laughs> People that aren't sure where they stand spiritually. Non-believers. Quasi-believers. They're always going to be around engaging in community groups and in worship and in relationships. That's, that's been the norm at our church, and we believe that it should be the norm. And, and listen, virtually every genuine conversion I've ever seen as a pastor has happened in this way. So what's your role, church, this year? It's not to leave here thinking, okay, Pastor Luke wants me to go be a missionary, so let me add that to my to-do list and clear my calendar. Because A, I know you're not going to do that. And B, that's not what I want you to do. Evangelism and mission is not something you need to add to your already busy life. Now, what I'm asking and what I'm hoping and praying for is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will live with a spirit-led intentionality and prayerfulness in the relationships, friendships, and communities that God has already placed us in. And, and as we're salt and light in the world. People will see our community, will see our relationships, will see the way we treat one another, and the community itself is the best interpretation and validation of the truth of the gospel. That's the way of a missional church. It's the way of evangelism in a post-Christian society. Let me close with this. Larry Hurtado is a, a classicist who has written this wonderful book called The Destroyer of the Gods, in which he talks about the rise of the Christian church in the first couple of centuries of the Roman Empire. And uh, he asks the question, how did Christianity grow so rapidly in the first three centuries? And, and very interestingly, he contrasts the rise of Christianity with the rise of Islam. And, and at one point he writes this, Islam had its success largely at the point of the sword. By contrast, the growth of Christianity in the first three centuries, the most crucial period, was largely a combination of the power of persuasion, especially in preaching, and simply the moral suasion of Christian behavior, their honest dealings, justice, generosity, and self-restraint. I find that to be provocative. And I believe that today 
is more like the ancient church than any other period in church history. What will it look like to be a church joining God in his mission in a post-Christian society? It will look like a church that preaches the gospel. It will look like a church that's seeing the public implications of the gospel and confronting our cultural idols. And it will look like a church that through its own community is showing the beauty and the radiance of Jesus's resurrection, life, and grace. And people are attracted to it. I hope you want to be a part of something like that because that's what we're trying to do here. So may it be the case for us this year. And may you join us in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray.